Good morning, church. Well, <clears throat> as we have said now, uh, this morning we are beginning a new series in keeping with our typical pattern of rotating between Old Testament and New Testament books so that we would avail ourselves of the whole counsel of God. We, we turn our focus to studying the book of Ephesians this morning. And I must tell you that it is with much excitement and intimidation that we undertake such a task. All of the Word of God is precious, church. But when you consider the books of the Bible in relation to one another, this one stands out as particularly distinguished. And it's uniqueness in its unique way it has so many special characteristics about it a lot of scholars have made the observation here that the book of Ephesians entails the most glorious explanation of the gospel a lot of scholars say that while Romans Stand, stands out as, as Paul's most technical description of the gospel. Ephesians stands out as Paul's most beautiful account of the gospel. While Romans is, is lengthy and legal in its language, Ephesians is concise and regal in its language. So, as we walk through the book over the next several months, our goal should really be to, to bask in the beauty of what we find here. We want to mine out from the book all of the truths that we find within it. And we want to do so in a way that, that leaves us with eyes that are enlightened to the majesty of God and hearts that are enlivened to the miracle of the gospel. We, we, we want to aim to do this. We want to aim to read it and study it in a way that leaves us changed. But the way that that happens, church, is by meditation on it. If we're going to have eyes that are enlightened to the majesty of God and hearts that are enlivened to the, the miracle of the gospel, we must meditate on its contents. And so uh, I'm going to invite you over the coming weeks and months to make a practice of dwelling with me in the book of Ephesians. It's not a long read. You can read it rather quickly. And so I would invite you to read through it several times over the coming weeks and months. If you have a, a Bible app, you can uh, listen to it. Just, just play it on your phone uh, or whatever device that you use for that. And you can listen to it and, and take it in that way. I would encourage you that as you gather around the dinner table to discuss what you're gleaning from the book together. It's in dwelling on the Word of God that, that we grow to treasure the Word of God and, and we're, we become changed by its truth. Jesus says that we are sanctified by the truth. His Word is the truth, John tells us. 
my hope is that in, in focusing on this book, both individually and corporately, that our blessings from it would be multiplied. This morning, we're simply going to consider the introduction to the book so that we can get acquainted with its context. In looking at the first couple of verses, we'll consider the, the writer, the recipients, and the rationale of the letter. The writer, the recipients, and the rationale of the letter. If you're a note taker, there are your headings. But before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we do pray this morning that as we begin to consider your word in the book of Ephesians, that we would study it in such a way, Lord, that does not leave us with inflated minds that would leave us not simply with big heads, Lord, but, but full and warm hearts. Hearts that have received your grace and cannot help but respond in worship to you and submission to you. God, we do pray that you would change us as we receive the food of your word. Lord, I pray that this morning you would keep me free from error and that you would guide us in our understanding of your word. And we ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. We begin by considering the writer of Ephesians. This letter begins the way that New Testament letters typically do. And that is to identify who is writing. So verse 1 starts with the revelation that it is indeed Paul who is addressing the church at Ephesus. As we begin to to study this book, it, it does us good to reflect on the person who's writing it. Because it, it certainly flavors the material that we're going to encounter within it. The testimony of Paul is well documented throughout the history of the church, as we read just a few moments ago in our service. Much of God's work of redemption in Paul's personal life is recorded for us in the Scriptures by, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts 9 tells us that he was a man who was deeply religious. He was well established in first century Judaism, and he ascended to some of the highest positions in Judaism. In Philippians 3, Paul himself tells us of his distinguished religious standing. He he says there, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. By the time Paul was 21, he had received the equivalent of of two advanced academic degrees, studying under Gamaliel. Trips me up every time I look at it and read it. But he had ascended to the highest Positions within Judaism, with the highest education, a prestigious man he was. 
with unparalleled zeal for the Jewish religion. He had become what can only be described then as a terrorist to the church. His passion led him to the point of persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus. Acts 9 tells us that up to the moment of his conversion, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It was as he was on his way to persecute more disciples that the Lord Jesus miraculously confronted and converted Paul. Now, you may ask, why is it important that we understand the human authorship of this book as we begin our study? And there are a couple of legitimate answers to that question. One of which is derived from meditating on the content of this material. Ephesians is, again, perhaps the most beautiful articulation of the gospel And as we read of these theological truths, along with their practical implications, we benefit here from knowing that these truths come to us not from some high-minded academic figure only. Theologically astute as he may have been, Paul's not simply familiar with the concepts of grace. Paul is a man who has experienced grace and been changed by it. As such, he he now seeks then to unfold the glorious grace of God for others, that they may be saved and sanctified by this grace. You know, some well-meaning older saints are are fond of saying, don't become so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. But Paul would take exception with that idea. In fact, he would take really great issue with that idea. Having experienced the grace of God and been changed so greatly by it, Paul contends throughout this letter that continually meditating on the heavenly doctrine of the grace of God will do you and those around you the most earthly good. Paul calls us to meditate on this grace, and so it's good that we consider him as one who's experienced this grace. His own experience of grace and his continued commitment to dwelling on it is immensely helpful to us. It it adds a, a human Uh, a, a, a realness to this letter as we read through it. Not just reading some theological textbook, but reading truths that come out of the well of a man's life that's been changed by grace. So that's one benefit we have in considering the human author. But the second benefit of reflecting on Paul as the author of this letter is that it speaks to the validity of its truth claims. Put another way, considering the human author of Ephesians builds our confidence in the divine authorship of this text. One may ask, how does affirming one author point us then to another author? And that's a good question. 
in our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture, we affirm that all Scripture has two authors. It has a divine author and a human author that communicates that divine message. And as we contemplate the truths communicated to us in Ephesians or or any other of Paul's writings, our confidence in the divine origin of these doctrines and commands grows because it's the only explanation for why Paul would believe these things. Consider for a moment, given the status and position that Paul had achieved within the Jewish community, the the success and prestige that he had there, why would he forsake all of that for teachings that are not true? From a worldly perspective, to, to forsake all that he had for the sake of Christ is simply foolish. Particularly when so much worldly honor was at stake. We can consider several biblical figures in a a similar fashion, but Paul stands out among them as as one with perhaps the most to be lost if this teaching that he espoused was not divine in its origin. So consideration of Paul as the author bolsters our confidence that ultimately God is the author and originator of the truths that we find in the book of Ephesians. Paul actually goes on to make the divine origin of his teaching explicitly clear in verse 1. Paul not only gives his name, but his position within the church, claiming to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle is one appointed to be an authoritative messenger. Being an apostle of Jesus Christ speaks to both the content and the commissioning of Paul's preaching. As an apostle of Christ Jesus, the content of his message was the good news of Jesus Christ. We find Paul's summary of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's Paul's summary of the gospel. The gospel message was Paul's passion and singular focus of his ministry. He he gave himself to preaching it, and, and to preaching it alone. Writing in 1 Corinthians, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Every word that Paul speaks throughout his letters, as we will see here in the book of Ephesians, is either a proclamation of the gospel, an explanation of the gospel, or an application of the gospel. It's all that Paul has to offer. But his apostolic message was given to him, this gospel that he preached. It was the gospel from beginning to To end, and he was authorized to preach it. Apostles are authorized not just because the content of their message is Jesus Christ, but an apostle's commission 
was directly from Jesus Christ. One of the qualifications to be an official apostle was to be authorized specifically by Jesus. The term apostle is sometimes used in the New Testament more generally to refer to all the disciples as as messengers. But the office of apostle is limited to those 13 individuals who are witnesses of the resurrection and commissioned by Jesus himself to proclaim the good news of redemption. You'll remember in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul vehemently rejects the idea that his apostleship or any apostleship could be claimed or conferred by any man. He says there in Galatians 1 that his apostleship is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. This idea is advanced further by Paul's words in saying that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In First Corinth, or excuse me, Second Corinthians, <clears throat> chapter eleven, Paul describes the hardship of his ministry, saying this: Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. <clears throat> Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. An encouraging ministry Paul had. Though Paul rejoiced in his suffering for the gospel, to suffer much was his plight as an apostle. And I can't help but think that if Paul was laying out his dream life, such suffering probably would not have been a part of his will. No. But the suffering that accompanied the life of an apostle was God's will. And by way of application, friends, it if it was, in fact, the will of God to give Paul an apostolic ministry and message, it is the will of God that we receive and submit to his apostolic ministry and message. His apostleship is from Jesus Christ, by the will of God. When considering the contents of any letter... We have not only to consider the writer, we have also to consider the recipients. If we're going to understand <clears throat> excuse me, the intention of the writer, we must consider who he's writing to. If we fail to reflect on the letter and 
how it was written, to whom it was written, then, then we fail really to discern <clears throat> how it may or may not have application to ourselves. But here Paul tells us who he's writing to. And because we know who the intended audience is, we can conclude that there is much that's meant for our benefit here. Paul continues in verse 1, saying that he is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now the term saint has really fallen out of use in evangelical uh, Protestant circles. No doubt as a result of the Roman Catholic Church's unbiblical use of the term. In Catholicism, for one to be considered a, a saint, the Pope must recognize them as having brought about not one, but two miracles in their lifetime. Yet, throughout the New Testament, all those who belong to Christ by faith are called saints. Because the term saint simply means one who is set apart by and set apart for God. And this is the consistent testimony of the, New, uh, of the New Testament concerning Christians. Those who God has saved, He has set apart to be holy. This is what Paul unfolds so gloriously in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, saying, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All past tense, friends. So it it is clear that those who belong to Christ are considered saints. God has set them apart unto Himself. And we conclude Something from this observation that Paul was writing this letter to the saints at Ephesus. We conclude that this letter belongs to the saints. In saying that this text belongs to the saints, what I mean is that it's directed to and intended for Christians. The encouragement in this letter is for Christians. The instruction in this letter is for Christians. Christians. The reproof and correction in this letter is for Christians. Now, that might sound elementary, but this distinction is necessary for us. It's necessary as we begin our study. Friends, there is a world of encouragement and comfort in the pages of this book. In, in Ephesians, we read of the eternal purposes of God towards us that initiate from His infinite love. And so we come to know our eternal worth before God in the pages of this book. We read of the eternal security that we have, even as we have been made alive together with Christ and been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places, Paul tells us later on. Friends, there is solace for the soul in the words that make up this letter. But Paul makes very clear here at the outset 
that all of this comfort for the soul belongs to those in Christ. The unbeliever finds no comfort here. Only a call to repentance. The unbeliever finds no eternal security here. Only the path to eternal security. There is no instruction given here for those apart from Christ. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he makes very clear in chapter 4 that the primary ministry of the church is the building up of its members so that they are equipped to hold on to and live out the faith. Paul's very clear throughout his writings that his moral instructions belong to believers, not unbelievers. See 1 Corinthians 5. And and this is a good reminder to us of the nature of the church. This letter will go on to lay out the, the nature and the function of the church more clearly than perhaps any other New Testament letter. But even here, as we understand that Paul was not writing to saints that were scattered about, but those that were gathered together as the church, we are reminded of what the church is. Saints are the individuals that God has set apart for Himself from eternity past. But the term used predominantly throughout the New Testament to refer to the church is ecclesia, which which means a called-out assembly. You would be perfectly in keeping with the New Testament to understand it as the set-apart assembly. Just as God has set apart people to belong to Him individually and pursue holiness, Jesus has established the church as the assembly of individual saints that are set apart to pursue His purposes corporately. This means, friends, that a church is not defined by externalities or cultural norms. The essence of the church is the fact that she is an assembly of those who have been called out of this world to belong to God and now seek to worship God. That is the essence of the church. The church then is not a building. Amen? Amen. The book of Acts actually tells us that the church at Ephesus gathered at the Jewish synagogue to hold worship services. That is, until they were run out of there. It took about three months. Then they met for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And I must tell you this morning that in a world that only looks at externalities for validation, and in a a Christian climate that seems not too far from that, reflecting on the nature of the church is quite encouraging to me. To think that the Apostle Paul was content to gather with this church wherever they could for the purposes of worshiping God That's humbling to me. To to think that the faithfulness of a church is defined 
not by a preponderance of buildings and budgets and baptisms, but the fact that she is a people who are set apart and committed to gathering for the worship of God under the instruction of His Word. That is encouraging to me this morning. And I pray that it's encouraging to you this morning. As Paul address, addresses this book to the saints who are at Ephesus, it, it prompts us to think on the nature of the church. And in thinking on the nature of the church, there's another reminder for us at the beginning of this letter. And that is we're reminded not to neglect the biblical teaching and practice of regenerate church membership. That is to say, only Christians with a credible profession of faith should be admitted to the church's membership and care. We could discuss this at length, but the bottom line is this. The church's one message is the gospel. And all of her ministries have, or, or should have, as their primary purpose, the application of the gospel so that believers are helped to embrace the implications of the gospel in their lives. So we carry on the apostolic ministry of the gospel proclamation and explanation to all. But the application of gospel living, with all of its encouragement and its moral imperatives, those belong exclusively to those who have experienced the saving grace of God in the gospel. If one's not been made a new creation in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, they can't be expected to desire submission to Christ's commands. Much less to be faithful to them. Yet here in verse 1, in in Paul's address, he uses the phrase faithful in Christ Jesus synonymously with this term saints. So as to say, by implication, that saints are faithful to Christ and His Word. And this tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that the church is made up only of those who belong to Christ. And secondly, it tells us That while the words of this letter belong to the saints of the church, and that there is much encouragement for us there, it speaks to us that the instructions in this letter are binding on the saints of the church. They are binding on the saints of the church who are expected to pursue faithfulness to Christ and His Word. These are the recipients that Paul is writing to, the saints at Ephesus. Now with the the writer and the recipients of the letter identified, Paul now turns to offer a prayer as a greeting to them. And this prayer greeting actually captures the rationale for his writing the letter. So we'll consider quickly the rationale for writing this letter. Unlike most other New Testament letters, there's really no discernible problem that Paul is writing to the Ephesians to resolve. We can gather that there's some things there that that needed clarification for them, but specific moral issues 
or heresy don't occupy much, if any, of this book. The content of the book is is really encapsulated for us in verse 2. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are the bookends of this letter. If you go to the last two verses of chapter 6, you'll find Paul leaving them with grace and peace. He greets them with grace and peace and he leaves them with grace and peace. And it's fitting because grace and peace really describe everything between these two bookends of the letter. Now here in verse 2, he's not merely greeting the Ephesians with grace and peace. He's actually praying for them. This is a prayer for them, that they would know the grace of God and experience His peace as a result. And he he, he prays this because it's really the, the purpose of all of His instruction that's going to follow. Grace is a continual theme throughout the book of Ephesians. You know, Paul is often called the apostle of grace. I said earlier in the service that the book of Ephesians is often called the epistle of grace. This particular subject just permeates the book. Everything that we read within it springs from this root of the miracle that is God's grace towards those in Christ. Grace, by definition, is the unmerited favor of God. And Paul will show in this epistle that God's grace is something that can never be earned and is never deserved. Yet in His kindness, God purposes to give His grace toward those united to Christ by faith. God's grace, we understand, is is operative both in the saving of God's people and the sustaining of God's people. Paul makes this clear in Philippians chapter 1, saying, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, It is right for me to feel this way about you, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And this is what he's praying for here at the beginning of Ephesians. He wants them to have an ongoing experience of the grace of God sustaining them in the faith and sanctifying them to become more like Christ. We've already established that Paul's writing to Christians there at Ephesus. They've already experienced the saving grace of God, but they, as all Christians do, need the sustaining grace of God to live in light of the new identity that they've been given in Christ. So we find in this letter that follows a stunning explanation of the grace that has come to believers in Christ. And then Paul goes on to give a detailed description of how believers should live dependent on grace in light of God's saving grace that He's lavished upon us in Christ. And the grace that sustains our spiritual walk is what allows us also, as Christians, to experience peace in this life. Paul speaks throughout this epistle about different ways in which a believer experiences peace. 
Christians are positionally at peace with God. Paul makes this clear elsewhere in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in this letter also about our position of peace with God. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, saying that He, he Himself is our peace. But Paul teaches not only about the positional peace that we have with God, he also talks about the Christian's practical experience of peace from God. He labors to show that in Christ, on the grounds of the gospel, peace has been made possible between groups of people that would otherwise have nothing in common and would stand as irreconcilable enemies. And as such, he charges them then to embrace this peace and the unity that comes to them through the gospel. Additionally, in teaching believers to embrace their new identity in Christ, we learn here in Ephesians by implication of an internal peace that's made possible for Christians. Friends, Our culture today is plagued by an increasing embrace of nihilism. For numerous reasons, people in masses are losing any sense of meaning or value or significance. This is true of people's outlook on the world as a whole. And logically then, they come to embrace this idea about themselves. It's no wonder that depression is absolutely pervasive in our society. This embrace of this meaninglessness leads to these sort of thoughts. But that philosophy is foreign to the Christian worldview. And Paul sets that out here. The scriptures from beginning to end are are clear that every aspect of existence has meaning. Not least of which is the fact that man is made in the image of God. And therefore he has inherent dignity and worth and value. But in the pages of Ephesians, Paul will go beyond the general sense in which humans are said to have meaning and dignity and worth. And he'll provide for us an understanding of the love of God towards believers in Christ that measures our significance in value in light of the value and significance of the precious blood of Christ, the eternal Son of God that shed His blood on our behalf. And in so doing, we're we're left to embrace the immovable, unshakable peace from God that settles any internal angst about personal worth or value in this life or in the life to come. It is filled with encouragement, friends. I'm excited about this book. And so as we see here, Paul praying for grace and peace, we understand that, that he believes that this grace and peace already belongs to those who are in Christ. 
And the rest of this letter is intended to expound for Christians how they can live in a manner that allows them to experience what already belongs to them. Because though grace and peace belong to Christians, we can experience these to greater and lesser degrees. In one sense, it can be said that we experience grace and peace from God relative to the degree that we're walking in submission to His revealed will for our lives. We don't experience the grace of God in our process of sanctification to the same degree when we are not pursuing a commitment to personal holiness. We don't experience as much of the peace of God with our fellow man or, or even within ourselves when we forget how the gospel informs these different areas of life. And so, Paul prays for the Ephesians, asking God to grant them the continual experience of grace and peace that flows from the gospel into lives that are focused on the gospel. And that, friends, is my prayer as we make our way through this book. That we would come to experience to a greater degree the grace and peace that comes from God. And we pray for that now. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we thank you that, that we're told here that you want good things for us. In fact, you want grace and peace in our lives. Things that the world can't have in its natural condition. You make possible for your children. And so God, we do pray that as we begin this walk through the book of Ephesians, Lord, that you would that you would inform our thinking from your word in such a way that actually begins to inform our lives and the way that we process thoughts about ourselves, about others. Lord, we pray that you would magnify our vision of you so that we would respond in more robust, more consistent worship of you in the face of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.